sing about my jacket when I come in. It's like, thank you. Thank you. I've, yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, because people, most of the comments were, oh, it's a bit unusual, that sort of thing. <laughs> I thought rather than just a bit unusual, you know, you could say something nice about it. But, yeah. There we go. Ah, oh, dear. I'm, I'm grateful, bunch of people, aren't you? Right, anyway, right, so where were we? We're in John 17 today. Great to have you all here. Um, particularly warm welcome if this is your first time with us. We do hope you feel at home. Any questions at all or anything that happens, please just talk to one of us at the end and we'd love to explain a little more. Um, we're in John 17, the last six verses, so from verse 20 to verse 26. Uh, let's read it and then uh, I'll pray. It says, I do not ask for these only, this is Jesus talking, praying to his Father, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for this beautiful prayer that we've been able to look at over these last few weeks or so, last couple of months. And we thank you so much, God, that you were praying for us, for your people, that we, we get this little sneak preview, this window into your prayer life, and we find you, Jesus, petitioning the Father for us. It's remarkable, God. And as we look at those words this morning, we want them to speak powerfully to our hearts. We want to be changed by your words. We want to be changed by you, Jesus, by nothing else. And we pray that you do that this morning. Amen. Amen. Through this uh, series we've been working through, um, we're on week number six today. Uh, we looked at these kind of different themes as we've been going along. We've been talking about what it means for us to be a church that's kind of in this world, but not necessarily of this world. What it means to stand for truth and being uh, Jesus' church, his people on his mission. Uh, and today we're going to look at what it means for a church to be a people who witness, who show to those around them uh, that they love Jesus. Um, but the question we haven't really answered, the subject I haven't really looked at because I was kind of saving it to this 
last week is for most of you, when you open your Bibles and read this passage, the whole of John chapter 17, at the top it will probably say Jesus' high priestly prayer. That will be the title written in your Bible. Uh, Now that wasn't in the original text that was something that would have been added later. So if you're, the way the Bible is divided into chapters and verses and the titles and things wouldn't, isn't something that was written originally and that's been added later to help us. Um, but there's a question for us of, of why, does it, why does it say Jesus' high priestly prayer? Um, because Jesus doesn't say it in his prayer. He doesn't say, I am praying as a high priest. He doesn't issue it like that to us. So it's a helpful question to look at for us to say, why does, why does it say that? What does that mean for Jesus to be a high priest? What is that, where, where, where's that going? Um, and sometimes, or often, the best way to help you interpret and understand the Bible is to use other bits of the Bible to make sense of it. Sometimes if you're reading the Bible on your own and you think, I don't understand this, if you find a good study Bible or something like that to help you, it will say, well, if you read this bit over here, it's gonna help you understand it. Because we believe the Bible is telling not just random fragments of information, but it's telling a story through the whole thing. And if you read different bits, it will help you understand. So we're going to roll back a little bit, and we're going to go all the way back to Exodus, the book of Exodus, and chapter 30, and we're going to read 10 verses together. Uh, Let me read this to you. It says, uh, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make of it Make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. This is going to make sense in a minute, don't worry. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. You shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you, and Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron steps up, sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer it unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in a year throughout your generations it is most holy to the Lord. Now, that may have not necessarily immediately helped you to make sense of John 17, but let me explain it to you. What Exodus 30 is doing, it's, it was giving Moses some instructions of how to set up the tabernacle tent, which would have looked um, a little bit like this. I know that's a bit blurry, you won't see it very well, but this is a, this is a tent here, you can see the high priest there and the kind of the, the, the opening curtain, the veil, the, that's the main entrance, and then you would go in and there's sort of two separate places in here and there's another veil here. And the altar which we are reading about in Exodus 30 is this one right here in the middle. And what would happen is every day the priest would, he would have walked in through that door 
into that kind of first space. And in one hand, he would have been carrying what would be called like a, a censure, which is like a container, a dish. It would have burning coals in it from the altar, which would have been outside, and he would carry them in. And then the other hand, he'd be carrying kind of incense. Imagine this would be, there's no windows in this tent, there'd be some candles lighting, it would have been uh, kind of dark and dim. He probably would have been a bit anxious to make sure he did the job right. And he would walk in through the door and he'd walk up towards uh, uh, this altar here, which is standing in front of the curtain that separates these two spaces, what's called the, the, the holy place and the most holy place or the holy of holies. And he'd walk up to this altar, the altar of incense, which is made of, uh, had overlaid with gold on its top and on its sides. And he put the, 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 the coals in the dish on top of it and then he put the incense on top. And it'd be a bit like, you know, in a sauna, you pour water on the coals and this kind of steam bursts forth. He put the incense on the coals and this fragrant aroma, this incense smell would just, this cloud would kind of fill into the, in, into the whole space of the tabernacle tent. And this great smell would kind of fill, this kind of cloud would fill the space. And the priest would be wearing, he'd have a little dress, well not a dress, uh, I don't quite know how to describe it. It looks a bit like that. Maybe some of you are wearing something similar to this on King's Day. He's, this is his garment. And you'll see here in the middle, he's got like a thing on his, on his chest. Um, it, it, you can read all about it in Exodus 28. But it's got this thing kind of overlaid on his chest, uh, which has got 12 jewels, like precious stones, each a different type of precious stone that are kind of in there all the way across. And on each stone would have been inscribed, written, one of the names of the tribes of Israel. So the priest is literally walking into the space, and he's, he's representing the people of God, their whole community. They're literally kind of overlaid on his, on his chest, on his heart, and why this is important is this is what's happening in, in John 17. Jesus is, is walking in to, 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 his, to the presence of his father and he's praying. And it says here as we, in verse 20 that he's praying not only for his disciples but for those that will follow for, for us. He's coming and he's praying for us. The same way that the priest would walk in with the tribes of Israel, kind of overlaid on his heart, on Jesus' heart are us, the, the people of God. Um, and Jesus doesn't walk in and pray with incense, but he walks, he's, his prayers themselves are the, the incense that he's offering, because um, incense, as you'll, as you'll see here, let me find the verse. We don't have any verses. There we go. Uh, no, not that one. Oh, no, wait a minute. Here we go. Psalm 141 says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Because incense is obviously an earthly thing. It's a thing that we can feel and touch and know, but it's symbolic of a, of a heavenly reality. And the incense that the priest would have used is symbolic of of kind of true worship, of prayer. Um, in Revelation 5, it sends, says incense, which is the prayer of the saints. 
So Jesus doesn't come and he's offering incense, but his prayers are like the, the incense. They, the incense symbolizes prayers, true worship. So Jesus is walking in as this high priest with us, the people of God, overlaid on his heart, and he's praying, he's bringing his incense prayers for us. He's our high priest walking in to pray for us, the same way as the priest would have gone in every day uh, to represent the people of God. Jesus has walked into this tent, this tabernacle for us. And I guess a, a good question to ask is, what, what's, he, what's, what's the kind of the burden of his prayer? What's, what's he praying for? All the way through John 17 and the end here helps, helps us to, to understand it uh, a little bit a little bit better as we go, but he's really, he's, he's praying for us, obviously, um, and maybe you find some of the verses a little confusing, because he's talking about, you know, as we are one, and I and them, and perfectly one, and the, the, all the words and things can be a little bit confusing, um, but it's actually wonderfully simple, and wonderfully beautiful, um, and again, to help us to understand, we're going to roll back again, not quite this far, but we're going to go to John chapter one. You see, the book of John, the first kind of, uh, the, the main bit of chapter one, the first 18 verses or so, they kind of uh, bring out some of the main themes that the letter kind of carries on and appears again. So it says in John one here, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become children of God. You see, that the same way that the father loves the son, the same way that God loves his one and only son is the same way that God loves us. This is what Jesus is praying about in John 17, particularly these verses. He's praying that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that we may become perfectly one so that well may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus is praying, he's saying to the Father, he wants everybody to know, he wants us to know that the Father loves us the same way that the Father loves the Son. The same way God the Father loves Jesus is the same way that he loves us because we've been adopted in through the work of Jesus to be his children, to be part of his family. There's a beautiful book written by a J.I. Packer called Knowing God, which is brilliant, particularly if you're, if you're new to Christianity. It's got a, um, about 25 or so just short chapters, uh, seven or eight pages, and, but each of them brings out a wonderful truth about who God is. Um, and he says this, is if, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all and that's a really important question for us is for you what what do you think of being God's child 
of him being your father, maybe you can understand that because we would pray to God the Father, but to put yourself and say, oh no, I'm God's child. What does that mean to you? You might think, well, that's not, that's not manly enough. I don't want to be someone's child. Well, I'm a grown-up now. Or you might think, do you know what? I don't really know what that means. Maybe your own family representation of your father isn't particularly a very good one and you, you struggle with that idea of considering yourself God's child. You don't really quite understand that. But it's a really important thing for us to try and get hold of because this is what Jesus is praying about here. And as J.R. Packer is saying in this book, this is one of the central bits of Christianity. If you get this, if you understand it, it will transform your whole outlook on life. See, because by being brought into Christ, into him, you've been brought into this relationship of the father loving the son and the son loving the father. You've been put right at the very center of that. And we've been brought into the father's love for his son. We've been adopted in, added into it. So what we're gonna do this morning is is have a look, a little bit of a look at what this love is like. Um, And we'll use John 17 and some hints it gives us to help us. So first of all, what kind of love is this? Is this? Well, as we've been saying, it's a, it's a fatherly love. It's that of a father to the son that we receive through Jesus. Now, and I want to just not run on too quickly from that. It means that we, each of us, this love between the father and the son and the son and the father, we get to participate within that. We get to be part of that. We belong to God. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you belong to him as his child. And that means that the father loves us no less than he loves his only son. It's not like, well, Jesus, and then the love for you is slightly tainted and dimmed and is down here. He loves you in the same way. Because this idea of adoption is a phrase the Bible uses, which maybe we would understand. It's more than just a legal metaphor. It's more than just an idea, the Bible's saying, oh, it's a bit like adoption. No, it's saying, no, it, it, it is adoption. It really is truly that. All the rights and privileges of being, of, that Jesus has as being God's child uh, imputed or uh, are added to us. We get to be loved in the same, the same way. The Bible says that we're co-heirs with Christ. You know, like an, an heir in the kingdom inherits everything from the king. And we're co-heirs with Christ. We get to receive the inheritance. So I've got a number of friends in England. I can think of one uh, couple that uh, adopted children about three years ago and uh, just after we moved here. And when I go back and visit them, the, the way that they relate to each other is obviously I've not, been, I've not witnessed the journey that they've probably been on over the last three years. I just get to arrive and see it. And it's just like any other family. <laughs> if they walked in here, you wouldn't know. We, we wouldn't need to say, oh, by the way, these are adopted kids. We would just wouldn't mention it. Why would you? And you wouldn't be able to tell. You just wouldn't know. It's just because the way they speak to one another, the way they interact with one another, is the same as any other family. <laughs> It's not just a metaphor, it's not just a legal thing that they've signed some paperwork, but there's a love that's kind of erupted out of them as parents and for the children to their new parents, that's the same as 
any, anyone would experience to their, their own natural parents. And that's the same how it works for us. It says in, in 1 John, it says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And then it says, and so we are. <laughs> it's not that we're just called children of God. We are. We are. And the second thing that this, we see about this love is that it's, it's eternal. It's eternal. Jesus is, is praying and he's saying, God, that you've loved me before the foundation of the world. That's how the relationship between, it's not that Jesus just appeared at Christmas and he wasn't there before that, but Jesus and the Father have been in this relationship through all of eternity. Um, but in the same way that God has loved the Son and the Son has loved the Father through all eternity, we've been caught up in the very midst of that. Because if, if we've been, if we now in Christ, which is a phrase the New Testament uses over and over again, if we're in Christ, then what's true of him is true of us. But the best way to describe this is, is in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, which says, even as, as he chose us, it's not talking about Jesus and God anymore, it's talking about you and me. Even as God chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be called holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Just try and get your head around that for a moment. Before the foundation of the world, he chose you. A friend of mine who's a preacher says, before God made Jupiter, he chose you. <laughs> Think of it like that. However you might consider creation to have happened, whatever you would see the creation story as, the Big Bang or whatever else, we could argue about that, but in a way that's kind of irrelevant. The main point is that before any of that happened, God chose you. He chose you. He picked you out. His love for you is eternal. It goes right back from from the start of eternity, if you could ever even quite imagine or get your head around what that even means. But he chose you before the foundation of the world. There's this beautiful, eternal love. It says in, in Jeremiah uh, 31, it says this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. It's not that just this love of Jesus is from the foundation of the world till now, but tomorrow you might lose it if you really mess up. It's from everlasting to everlasting. It just keeps on going. That, 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 that's, what, that's what your future looks like. Sometimes you might sit down and think, I wonder what my future looks like. I wonder what my life holds for me. What it holds for you is Jesus loving you through all eternity. <laughs> and that's really the most important thing. He's going to keep on loving you and keep on loving you. A writer called John Owen, a Puritan from a few hundred years ago, who I like to quote from time to time, he says that Jesus is the treasury wherein the Father disposes of all the riches of his grace taken from the bottomless mine of his eternal love. 
I think is a really helpful phrase. In Jesus, the, the love we find is this everlasting, bottomless mine. But you can't get to the, the end of it. I lived with a, with a friend of mine who had a criminal past, not Joe, someone else, who, who, <laughs> who uh, he, he I, I don't quite know all of his story, but he told me a few snippets of what had happened. But part of it is he, he, would, um, he would help people dispose of cars. He didn't quite tell me any more than that. Uh, he lived in the southwest of, of England uh, in a place called Cornwall. And in Cornwall, you can find these, I think they're like tin mines, um, where they would, they're all kind of abandoned mines. Uh, and he knew one or two where you could literally drive a car all the way up to the edge and be like a little fence around it, and he'd open the gate, and you could just push the car in. <laughs> so he would do that. He'd just drive... I don't, I don't know if they were stolen cars or what they were. He would drive the cars up to the edge and then they would just push them in um, for fun. It is bizarre. But he said these mines were so deep that you know in, in a film you see a car go to the edge of a cliff then it kind of rolls and flips and then there's a smash. He said you push it in and you'd wait for the smash but the mine was so deep you'd be waiting for quite a long time. Think, is, it, is it coming? Is it going to hit the bottom yet? And then suddenly you'd hear this noise kind of rumbling up from below. The thing is, with Jesus' kind of bottomless, everlasting mind of love, you can, you can listen, but you won't hear anything. You can think, well, but, but you don't understand. You, you don't understand what I've done or what I thought, my story. You don't understand that. Maybe, maybe you're, you're thinking that this morning. You just don't get you know, the evil inside of me, the things that I've done, the things that I thought that nobody knows about, and you think... Jesus' love can't reach that and you're at the mine, you're waiting to hear the noise kind of rumble up from the depths and it's just silence. You just can't hear it because it's just this bottomless mine of eternal love that just goes on from the start of history to the end of history. just goes on. It's amazing. Right, now the next point is maybe a little bit more confusing, but it will help us as well. What kind of love, well this is an important one, we're not at the center of it, which might sound a bit bizarre to you, but it's helpful for us to see, because it's, it's easy to think that the kind of, the, the motivating power behind the cross of Christ, why Jesus died for you, is for you. You know, that would make sense. John 3.16, we all know it's so God so loved the world, God so loved you and me that he sent his only son. Um, which is true, obviously that's true. But here in this chapter in John 17, we, we, and all the way through the book of John really, we're seeing that it's, it's the, the actual motivating power behind it, the driver behind it is the father's love for the son and the son's love for the father. The son's obedience to the father's will. So Jesus in Gethsemane in Luke 22 prays, not my will be done, but yours. He's not saying not my will be done, but the will of all the people that need a savior. He's saying not my will be done, but yours, Father, because I love you and that's what love looks like. It's obedience. That's the motivating power behind it all is Jesus' love for his Father and the Father's love for the Son. I went past a a building in, in the city a couple of weeks ago and they had a sign outside saying, Mein God geloofd in Mai, excuse my pronunciation, which means my 
God believes in me. In Dutch, my God believes in me. Which, which might sound like a nice phrase and um, in, in some ways I can understand what they're trying to get at. They're, they're, they're trying to, where people would think that God's just angry and he's cross and he just wants to destroy everything. They're saying, no, no, God loves you, that God cares for you. But actually there's something not quite right about that phrase. My God believes in me, your God believes in, in you. Because the thing is, we're not at the center of it. <laughs> at, at the center of is Jesus' love for the Father and the Father's love for the Son, which I keep saying over and over again. And we're in the middle of that. But we, it's not that they both really love us, but they really love each other and we're caught up within that. Which is wonderfully releasing because if, if it was down to me or down to you, then one day you're going to fail. Probably, maybe this evening <laughs> or tomorrow or this week, or this month, or this year, at some point you'll do something and you'll think, oh, God couldn't possibly love me anymore. Because <laughs> we all get to that place, because, and God's a holy God, and we all do things that should, should mean that God has to turn his back on us and turn away from us. If it was down to just purely God believing in our goodness, we're not gonna get very far. But <laughs> God believes in the goodness of his son, and that's been imputed, added to us. So God now looks at us and he sees all the righteousness of Jesus all over us. So we, do you understand what I'm saying? We, we are at the center because we've been brought into this relationship, but it's not about you and me. It's about the father and the son. The thing is, is um, there isn't anything like this. <laughs> There's no love like this. You can go and search around. And that's what most of us spend our lives doing, searching for a love that will truly satisfy, something to worship, something that's gonna meet their needs, something that's gonna really make them happy. And you can search and you search and you search. You won't find any love greater than this. <laughs> you won't. You can try, and we probably will try, but you won't, you won't. This is the story that has captivated us, that's changed us and will keep on changing us. And finally, what kind of love, or this love is mission fuel? You might think, I'm surely we were talking about the church being a witness. What has anything got to do with that? Well, Jesus was praying, if you remember, right at the very start. He was praying and saying, so that the world may believe. That's always on the heart of God. He wants, he's, he's searching, he's seeking out people, adding them into his family all the time. See, because God... God has always sought to dwell, to be in the midst of his people, to be at the very heart of it all. So if we roll back again to John 1, it says, it says this, and there the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The key phrase I wanna look at is that he dwelt among us, that, that word dwell is like this beautifully kind of intimate phrase, and if you're gonna translate it literally, it, it would mean to sort of, for Jesus to kind of have his tent, to, to tabernacle amongst us, that picture that we looked at earlier. The idea of Jesus dwelling is Jesus wants to come and set up his tabernacle tent, the holy of holies, his temple presence, 
God has always desired that that's at the, at the center of his people. And now, through this great high priest, his temple is now set up within the people of God, within us, within the church. He set his temple in our hearts now. And that means that the church, the people of God, we're more than just a club or a loose organization. It's so much greater than that. This, what we're part of is supposed to be kind of otherworldly and compelling. It's supposed to not really make any sense to people around us because they look at it and think, goodness, there's something so radically different about how these people love each other and how these people love God. It's, we're not like any other organization, any other group. And the world is supposed to see us, see our love for Jesus, our love for one another, and that's the witness. <laughs> that's how people know. It's not just us doing lots of good things or putting, having a big building and putting lots of signs out. It's not that the city's gonna know because we have good advertising. The city will know from how we love. That's the really important thing. It's almost like the world is supposed to kind of smell, get a fragrance, get a sense of it and just know. Like that incense in the temple, the idea that, that uh, the, the priests would be able to just smell it and be overpowering and the smell of the incense told something of God's love. In the same way, they're kind of the, almost the aroma of how the church loves each other, how we love each other. People are supposed to see that and know. As some of you were telling me, I didn't get to see it, but a few weeks ago there was, um, I can't remember what it was called, like a flower parade, right? A few of you, like in Harlem and a few other towns around here, this kind of, once a year, this flower parade goes through and you wait on the streets and flowers come past. Um, so I sound a bit dismissive there. I'm sure it's really good. I'm not big on flowers myself, but... Anyway, the, the thing is, when they come past, one of the most striking things, I'm told, is just the aroma, like the smell wafting towards you of all these flowers. And the church is supposed to be like that. People are supposed to encounter us, whether it's here on a Sunday, or probably more importantly in the week, how we're doing life together. They're supposed to encounter us, and this aroma, this smell kind of strikes them, like, oh, wow. There's something about how these people love each other, something about how they love God, their, their worship, their prayers, their, their desire is this incense again, this smell going up to God. And people around it are supposed to smell it and sniff it and know. So it's, it's like someone said to me last week at the end of the service, he said, he said, it's funny how when the service finishes, he said, you all just, no one seems to leave, you all just stand around and talk to each other. And if we went to a concert or a film, or a play in a theater, you know, the curtain goes down and everyone claps and then you go out. Of course you do. You know, you might talk to your friends that you came with, but everyone just leaves. Whereas here, we finish and then it's almost like the service finishes and, and not that church kind of begins, but church continues. The service finishes and then we all just carry on being the church. We carry on talking and seeing how everyone's doing and maybe praying for one another, encouraging one another, hearing about how each other's weeks have gone. Sometimes it's just chit-chat, we're just talking about sport or whatever, uh, or sometimes it's genuine deep conversations, we're sharing life together. That's what the church is supposed, it's, it's unusual. Other organizations don't happen like that. And, but, but people come in and they see that and they think, this person said that to me, said this, that's, they were surprised, they were taken aback. And they're supposed to be. 
when people encounter the church, the real church, when it's at work, it's supposed to surprise them. They're supposed to think, oh goodness, I didn't know there was a love like this. Why do you do this? What's this, what's this about? Now I guess the final question that might be on your heart or you might be wondering is, how, how do I know if this is true? <laughs> how do I know if this is real? You know, this sounds great, but how do I, how do I know? Where's the proof? Well, it's quite simple, really. The Bible gives us an answer. It says in 1 John 3.16, by this we know love. That means any sort of love through all history. The one way that you know what real love is, is this, that he laid down his life for us. <laughs> and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is how we know that this is all true. It's not just some crazy talk, this idea of adoption and this priest. Because if we go back to that, the, uh, that tabernacle scene that we were talking about at the beginning. Obviously one act of the priest was to go in and offer this incense. It would fill the, the, the room. He'd go in there every day and do that. The other act of the priest was not just the incense and the prayers, but was sacrifice. That's what the priest would do. They would sacrifice and they'd bring and present it before God. They do it once a year on the Day of Atonement. They do it other times as well, this sacrifice. The beautiful thing about our high priest, Jesus, is that he's done that as well. We didn't just come and pray for us, but he offered his own life as this once and for all sacrifice for us. This high priest has, has enabled us to, we were praying just before we started and Len read that wonderful line from Hebrews that says, now we, we can come before the throne of God. The, the, the curtain's been torn away. That beautiful tabernacle tent, we don't have to sort of set up the church like that anymore. There doesn't have to be some sort of curtain between when you come in, I mean there are curtains, but that's not what they're for. We don't have to have that anymore. We can come and know God, because this high priest has once and for all died and this sacrifice has been paid for everything that you've done, everything that you've thought or said, Everything that you know that would displease God, your friends, that displeases yourself, everything that you think, oh, I can't believe I did that, all paid for. It's once and for all sacrifice has paid for all of that. Let's, um, let's stop. I'm going to pray, and then Joe's going to lead us in a few more songs of worship. Jesus, we... We thank you so much that we can, we can look at the cross and we can know what real love looks like, that you lay down your life for us. And we can examine our own hearts and know that we're completely unworthy, that we've done nothing to earn, to merit your favor, and yet it's been poured out on us, this bottomless mine of eternal love just keeps flooding over us again and again. And we, could, we can try and run away, we could try and escape your love, but, but uh, as Derek was talking about it last week, it follows us, it pursues us, it hunts us down, his mercy and grace and goodness. We thank you, God, that you've, you've won us, you've saved us, and we just want to respond by bringing our, our, our worship to you now. Amen.